As Tyler said, you guys are going to spend the summer in the Sermon on the Mount, the Summer on the Mount, and I have the privilege of starting that by looking at the Beatitudes. So let's open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. The title of this sermon is God's Good News for the Unexpected and Undeserving. God's good news for the unexpected and undeserving. We'll be looking at Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 5, 1 says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word before us this morning that is now lingering, reverberating in our ears, in our minds, and moving toward our hearts. Thank you that your word goes to the very depth of who we are, that it's living and active, that it's able to do a deep, deep work in us. And we say together as God's people that we want God's spirit to do a deep work in us through God's word. So we haven't just opened up our Bibles this morning, God. We've opened up our hearts and the depths of who we are to you. And we ask that you'd speak to us through your true, inerrant, authoritative, wonderful word. Give us ears to hear, feet that want to obey and live out your truths here. And we ask together, Lord, please, that you would anoint me to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to the Bible helpful to this church, and brings glory to Jesus. We ask it together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I might need a little crowd participation here for this intro. We have in our culture um, some sort of like folk sayings about God that we've sort of invented as people that help us think about or try to understand the way that God works. Like one of the ones that often comes to mind that popular culture says is that, um, you know, God works in mysterious ways. You hear that one. That's one of those folk sayings. But there's one that everyone has heard. Your grandma probably said it to you when she's trying to get you to be responsible at one time. Does anybody know what it was? Yes, sister. What is your name? Michelle, good job. Nailed it right off the bat. Your grandma said that to you. God helps those who help themselves. 
that is a staggering lie about God. Your grandma was a heretic. An absolute heretic. Popular as the saying is, it is a staggering lie about God. God helps those who help themselves. Now, when we think about the Beatitudes here, it's really difficult for us to understand them culturally because that really is the cultural vibe from which we come. Right? We are oriented toward self-sufficiency. Right? God helps those who help themselves. We're oriented towards strength and victory and privilege and power. That's the place from which we like to work in our culture. And so because of that, when we read these words, like blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, they don't make sense to us. We're not necessarily the right audience to hear it rightly. So we try to do with the Beatitudes what makes sense to us. We try to make them a to-do list that we can conquer, that we can progress through. Something that we could check off. We try to make it a 10 steps to being blessed sort of thing that we can do. Because God blesses those who help themselves. That is exactly what isn't being said here. So let's try to understand what is being said here. We need to understand what's going on in the book of Matthew, first of all. What's happening in Matthew up until this point? Matthew is presenting Jesus as the long-expected Jewish Messiah, King, Savior of the world. And though he is a long-expected Messiah, in the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus comes in unexpected ways. Though he was expected, he came to Israel in unexpected ways. He didn't come uh, denoting some great pedigree or from some place of power or functioning from some place of wealth. Rather, he came from a broken and sordid family tree, we learn in Matthew chapter 1. He was born in a small town animal stable, we learn in the early chapters of Matthew. We also learn that early on in his life, he became a refugee who had to flee corrupted power. Jesus was raised, Matthew tells us, in an off-the-map, podunk sort of town doing manual labor. And when the big moment came, the one who introduced him, the one who announced, was this camel-hair-wearing, bug-eating, outdoorsy, prophet-weirdo guy, John the Baptist. So Matthew is telling us that, yes, Jesus was the expected Messiah, the son of David, the heir to the promises of Abraham, but he came in very unexpected ways. That's key. But then we have this moment, just a chapter ago, of uh, Jesus' baptism, which was also unexpected, that Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized. And when Jesus was being baptized, you'll remember that the heavens opened up and this voice came from heaven. God the Father who said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then the spirit descended upon Jesus. And then Jesus was led into the wilderness by the spirit in the power of the spirit. And he had a direct face-to-face confrontation with pure evil, Satan himself. And guess who won? Come on, who won? Jesus won that. 
So he came in this unexpected way from this sort of tremendous place of like this, this broken family tree and this small town thing and this manual labor and this strange introduction. But all of a sudden the heavens open up and this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then he wins this head-on, head-to-head confrontation with evil. And what that is teaching us is that the power and the glory of God's kingdom has certainly come but it came in unexpected ways. But it's evidential in Christ and his victory over Satan and them and his baptism and the pronouncement from heaven that the gracious blessing and the righteous loving rule of God had come in Jesus. In Jesus, the kingdom had come. And what happens here in, in Matthew 5 is that Jesus is now announcing, demonstrating, and explaining the good news about that kingdom. He's announcing, demonstrating, and explaining in the Sermon on the Mount the good news about that kingdom. And really that announcement and demonstration starts a couple verses before chapter 5 in the last couple verses of chapter 4. So if you'll look there, it says in verse 23 of Matthew 4, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed Jesus. So it starts there, this demonstration, this explanation of the good news about the kingdom that has come in unexpected ways with Jesus. And through those miracles that were just explained to us at the end of chapter 4 there, Jesus is demonstrating in those miracles, in in those healings, the good news about the kingdom. And what do they demonstrate? What do those healings and those miracles demonstrate? Well, many things, but let me tell you primarily what they demonstrate. They demonstrate this, that God actually helps those who cannot help themselves. That's what Jesus was doing there. They demonstrate this good news about the kingdom that God actually helps those who absolutely cannot help themselves, nor in many of their cases could even be helped by anyone else in the world. Those who were in pure need. Jesus comes to those people. It's the sick who need a physician, he would say later on. I've come to seek and to save the lost. He would pronounce it another time. And we would see in the Gospels that he was the friend of the broken and the outcasts and the sinners. That in Jesus and in the Sermon on the Mount, the God's restorative and redeeming blessing has been brought to those who had no other hope is what's happening. And now... In the text of the Beatitudes, he is explaining in certain Old Testament words what he has been demonstrating through those miraculous healings. That is, namely, who is blessed and to whom does the kingdom belong? And it's bracketed in that phrase about this is to whom the kingdom belongs. In verse 3, the first Beatitude there, 
right? It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In verse 10, toward the end, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So that's the idea. Who does the kingdom of God belong to? Who are the members of it? And again, what we're discovering is it's unexpected. Because as they heard it there, sitting on the mountain with Jesus that day, they would have been surprised by the fact to hear that this glorious and powerful kingdom that was demonstrated by Jesus healing all those people and his victory over Satan and over evil, that that kingdom wasn't coming to those who were considered in that culture to be sort of the in crowd. And there certainly was an in crowd. Those who were influential, those who were powerful, those who held the high seats in the religious culture there in Israel, they were the likes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law and the scribes, those characters that we see throughout the Gospels. There was clearly this in-religious crowd who had seen from the view of the disciples sitting on the mountain that day had done everything right religiously. And it was to them that they would have expected this kingdom to have come. It was them that they would have expected it to belong to because they were the ones in that culture, the religious elite, who had successfully helped themselves. Maybe their grandma too said to them, Michelle, God helps those who help themselves. And they had done well at helping themselves. But what we're learning in Jesus' explanation of the kingdom and the Beatitudes is that God was not impressed. He wasn't looking for the good performer. He wasn't looking for the strong. He wasn't looking for the self-sufficient. He wasn't looking for the one that was good at helping themselves. He has rather come to save the unexpected and the undeserving. And this was nothing new. It's not as though this dropped out of the sky and it was like this whole new thing. This is always the way that God had worked. Remember, Matthew presents to us, and we understand Jesus, as the full and final fulfillment of God's story with humanity, and in particular, God's story with Israel. And the way that that goes, if we just want to look at the display of the first five books, is we have there God's story of humanity and God's story of Israel, Israel looking like loving creation, sinful rebellion, gracious redemption, and then loving law, right? God lovingly created all things. Humanity sinfully rebelled. God graciously redeemed Israel, and he lovingly gave them his law that they might flourish. That's the story of God in Israel. And what we discover throughout that story is that God's work amongst humanity, God's work amongst Israel, was always according to grace, not anything they ever deserved. Always according to grace and not anything that they deserved. God graciously redeemed them by his own choosing and his own love and his own character, not because they were big and strong or rich and powerful or good and obedient. In fact, he made sure to tell them that they weren't. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 7. We'll put it on the screen. It says here, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God's choosing of Israel, his redeeming of them, wasn't because they were big and strong. He actually said, you aren't. You were these little people. And it wasn't because they were rich and powerful. Look what he says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You may say to yourself, my power and my strength, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. So it wasn't because they were rich and powerful. Any of that they had came from God anyway. So they didn't choose them for that. Nor was it because they were good and obedient. Look at what he says to them in Deuteronomy 9. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourselves, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No. It is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land. For you are a stiff-necked people. God putting Israel in their place concerning his redeeming, saving, delivering, blessing work among them. Make sure that they didn't understand or they didn't think that it was something that they had earned or deserved and that he was now intervening because they had done so well at helping themselves. It's very clear throughout scripture, that God saved and delivered Israel in spite of their liabilities and their lack of merit. And this is good news that Jesus is proclaiming. It's a continuation of that story when it says in Matthew 4.23, one about proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. The good news was being offered to those who did not deserve it and weren't expected. And that is the key to understanding the Beatitudes. You may have heard it said in the study of the Beatitudes before that they are the, to have a little wordplay, the be attitudes, or attitudes that you ought to endeavor to be like or to, or to have in your being. That's wrong. <laughs> Whoops. So that's what's being said here. Nor is it, as we said, a to-do list. You're not to read it and say, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that and, and I'll try to become that and I'll do that because what, blessed are the mourn? Like you're going to go out and make yourself mourn? <laughs> blessed are the persecutes? Are you going to go get, get yourself persecuted? It's not a to-do list. It doesn't even make logical sense and that's not what God meant. This is not good advice on how to be blessed. This is rather good news that God blesses the unexpected and undeserving. This is not good advice. This is good news. It's counter to the way that we would normally expect things to happen as evidenced by our grandmother saying, God blesses those who bless themselves. Jesus explains this sort of dynamic pretty well later on in Luke chapter 18. Put on the screen, read this little vignette with me. 
Jesus says in Luke 18, 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. Now, remember what he had said to Israel back in Deuteronomy 9. He's saying it again here in a different way. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Get this prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Pause right there. He was really good at helping himself. His self-understanding was that he had done something to earn and deserve, and so he expected the blessing of God. Now here's the unexpected part. It continues in verse 13. But the tax collector, Jesus says, stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is the very idea that is being captured when Jesus says in the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, blessed means happy in general. We could translate it that way. That way. Makarios in the Greek, happy are. Those who are poor in spirit, that's counterintuitive. A picture of poor in spirit is this tax collector from Luke 18 exactly who wasn't even willing to look up to heaven that in his shame like a beggar living in full disgrace head down fully dependent upon the goodwill of another for anything to come to him have mercy on me a sinner he wouldn't even look up that's the picture of poor in spirit the idea is bankrupt in spirit haven't performed well haven't put ourselves in a place of deserving. Can't possibly ex be expecting of, expected of the blessing of God. Jesus came to help those who could not help themselves. Spiritually bankrupt. No merit before God. Nothing deserving of goodness from him. Dependent upon his grace. And what Jesus says here is not a new thing. It's an old thing. He's been saying this all along. Isaiah 66, 700 years before Christ came, says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? Right there, Jesus is getting at there, or God in the Old Testament is getting at the idea of, Oh, you want to do something for me, huh? Where's a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. God is saying there what Jesus is saying here. It's not the one who thinks that they've earned and deserved and are rich in spirit, but rather bankrupt and, and impoverished in spirit, contrite in spirit, realizing they deserve nothing before God. Jesus surprises and stuns the culture by, says, it's, by saying it's this one. 
who will be made happy in the kingdom. It's this one to whom the kingdom belongs and the religious elite would bristle at that. But what about us and all that we've done? And then the concept of surprise continues in verse four in the second beatitude where he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now that doesn't make any sense. Happy are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. How does that work out? Normally, we would say happy are the ones who are celebrating and have a lot to celebrate. But this is the unexpected, deserved way of the kingdom. Jesus came and is pronouncing comfort for those to whom life has been cruel. This is good news. That's not good advice. Go find a way to mourn. This is good news. God's promise of comfort for those to whom life has been cruel. And this isn't a new thing. This is an old thing. God had always said this. Way back in Isaiah 61. These words may sound familiar to you because Jesus read them out loud in a synagogue in Luke chapter 4 at the beginning of his ministry. He says there, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Same language. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. God's ancient and wonderful promise bring comfort for those to whom life has been cruel. Not those who succeed and had it all together and have all the reasons to celebrate. Right? That's when we usually esteem ourselves to be blessed. Right? We say, oh, dude, she's blessed. She has thus and so. Oh, man, he's blessed. He got that. Yeah, I'm blessed. I just got the promotion. Oh, man, I'm blessed. I'm in the place of power now. Oh, I'm blessed. You know, I just got a 100% raise. That's the times when we talk about being blessed. This is a whole nother thing entirely. Blessed are the bankrupt in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And the element of surprise continues in verse 5, where Jesus says famously, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the earth. Wait a minute, that's like, who wins in the end language? Like, who will inherit the earth? Who, who wins in the end? Well, we all know who wins in the end, right? It's, it's survival of the fittest, right? It's the strongest. He who dies with the most toys wins, right? That's who inherits the earth. It's exactly what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus says to the meek, to the humble, they will have a blessed position in the kingdom and ultimately in the future. This is not news for what God has always said. In Psalm 37, we read this. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret because of he who prospers in his way, right? Those who look like they're winning. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Don't fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, 
It's going to be a judgment. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Same language. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in abundance and peace. See, we would always think, and this is the way that we live, the strong will inherit the earth. The victorious, the ones who move through the to-do list, the ones who advance up the ladder, the ones who increase their, their influence and their authority and their platform. That's fine. Think that way. It's just not the way Jesus thought. Your grandma thought that way, but that's not the way Jesus thinks. I'm probably going to see your grandma in heaven and have to apologize, huh? <laughs> and the good news continues in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's a similar promise to what we read in Psalm 37. Jesus is saying that there will be ultimate satisfaction for those who are horribly dissatisfied in this existence because they hunger and they thirst for righteousness. It could be translated justice. If you're hungering and thirsting for something, it's because there's a lack. And so this is for the people who perceive that there was a lack of righteousness or a lack of justice. It may have been without, it may have been something they observed in the world or the culture, or it may have been within. Something that they sensed and saw within themselves, but somewhere there was an unrighteousness there was an injustice that left them deeply dissatisfied. And they hungered and they thirst for righteousness. Jesus says they are happy because they will be satisfied. And again, this is not something new, but this is something ultimate. You know, whenever you're wondering, like, okay, the Bible, where is this all going? Just turn to the end and look at the book of Revelation. As creepy as it is, it gives us the clear end game. And so we see the end game of this idea in Revelation chapter 7, a beautiful passage here. It says, for this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. For they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore. This is not talking about food. It's not talking about drink. Nor will the sun beat down on them, meaning there won't be any more exposure, nor any heat. For the lamb, who's the lamb? Jesus. In the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. The picture becomes more poignant when we realize who it is. That there in the book of Revelation are those who have been martyred, murdered for their faith in Jesus. There was in their experience a deep, deep injustice in the land cost them their lives, a pervasive unrighteousness that threatened their very earthly existence. But the end game is that they get to this place with Jesus where he spreads his tabernacle over them. Remember John chapter 1, Jesus came and tabernacled amongst us, and he's in the center. 
and there's no more hunger or thirst for they are fully satisfied in the presence and the love of God. And that, that speaks to what Jesus was saying in the last couple of verses. If you just skip ahead to verse 10 for a minute. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Jesus is announcing there good news to those who appear to be losing. And you know, that doesn't resonate that deeply with us here in America. Like, we actually don't know persecution. But you do know, right, that we have brothers and sisters around the world who are literally losing their lives for their faith in Jesus. And they observe a deep, deep injustice, a pervasive unrighteousness that leaves them hungering and thirsting. And Jesus is promising good news for those who appear to be losing, that the reward is great in heaven. And that same idea is just fleshed out further in verses 7 through 9. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Again, it's just another reversal. The world functions differently. Not according to mercy, but ruthlessness. Not purity, but deceitfulness. And not peace, but war. Jesus came to announce to the merciful and the pure and the peacemakers that even though it seems as though in this life you lose, in the kingdom you win and you are actually happy. God's undeserved, unexpected blessing has been brought to you. And we, we really got to like give some careful thought about, to the, way, about the way to which this, this kingdom announcement butts up against the way that we usually live and value and esteem things. Let's be honest for a moment. We're very much oriented by accomplishment and success and gathering and more and influence and platform, and power, and what Jesus says here, butts up against that in some profound ways. So we've we got to think about how, do, how does that begin to shape then the way that I think about the values of this world, this culture, this city. Jesus is announcing a different quality of unexpected blessing in his kingdom. And it's not... It's not, again, it's not a call to work. It is a pronouncement of grace. You don't read this and say, okay, well, then I'm going to go and become humble. Right? The moment you say, wow, I just became humble is probably the moment where you're the, the least humble. <laughs> it's not an invitation to work, but it is an invitation to receive. And here's two ways that we receive. Number one, for some of you, this good news is exactly for you because you find yourself in the place where it feels like you're losing. Maybe it's a deep, deep mourning. Happy are you when you mourn for God himself will comfort you. Maybe it's a deep, deep sense of injustice and unrighteousness and maybe it's without, maybe it's within. 
you're hungering and you're thirsting for more. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for those things, for you will in Christ be satisfied. But the other way that the good news is for us is that we actually, whether we realize it or not, we are here in those pronouncements. We are the recipients of those news because we are in this truth found to be not as awesome as we once thought we were. <laughs> because God's word to Israel is God's word to us. That it wasn't because you were big and strong, rich and powerful or good and obedient. You're actually a stiff-necked people. And careful to us when we begin to look and feel like the religious elite of Israel, religious elite of Israel who said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I got my stuff together and I'm doing things right. There's a sure way to miss this pronouncement of grace. We are actually this spiritually impoverished before God. We hold no merit in and of ourselves. Christ came to announce the pure, unadulterated grace for us from God who could not help themselves. We are in the multitudes at the end of chapter 4. God helps those who cannot help themselves, and that is our actual condition before God. So what do you do with that? If it's not a to-do list, what do I do with it? You just receive it, dude. Just receive it. Receive that the kingdom has come and that in Christ you are the undeserved, unexpected, but radically loved, beloved daughters and sons of God. And receive that, that God's blessing, God's happiness, God's favor has been brought to us. And so live out of that place and take it to others. Go to the mourning. Go to the persecuted. Go to the poor in spirit. Go to the dissatisfied. And pronounce the good news of Jesus to them because it is for them that Christ came. Amen? Yes. Lord, we give you thanks and we give you praise for this good news. And we ask the Holy Spirit, you would thrill our hearts with this news this morning. That we are the recipients of this amazing grace. And that the, the love of God that's been brought to us in Christ and the forgiveness of sins that we have through Christ in this cross would be more glorious to us than ever before when we realize that we are the undeserving. Thank you that you have freed us from a to-do list and you have brought us into a place of receiving grace. Pray for those who have not yet received your grace in this building this morning, that they would realize that they are spiritually impoverished, bankrupt, but that you love them, God, and that, Jesus, you pay the price for their sins on the cross. And they would put their faith in you, Christ, and what you've done for them, and they would receive forgiveness today, and you'd flood them with grace and mercy, and they would discover blessedness today. And for the rest of us, Lord, for those of us that are suffering or 
walking through these things or just being. Thank you that it's about who you are and your wonderful grace and not who we are and what we've done. Help us to receive that. Teach us to sit in it, to live into it and from it in a way that glorifies Jesus. Thank you that you love us and you brought this grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.